Nirmal Hansali. Hi, I'm Sandesh Atyam. You're listening to the Legal Synthesis podcast, where over the course of the next few months, Sandesh and I will be trying to make sense of some big questions related to finance, technology, and law, and how they influence each other. Okay, so Sandesh, who was the guest for this episode, and what was the topic about? Nirmal, today's guest is Shohini Sen Gupta. She is an assistant professor of research at the Jindal School of Banking and Finance. Her background is primarily in public policy. She currently teaches banking and financial regulation. In this episode, we discuss the implications of companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon, or collectively referred to as big tech, entering into the financial services industry. I remember you ranting about this last year in a college mess after you read that Guardian long read about this. It still sounds daunting. So why don't you just walk us through this discussion? The influence of technology in our financial dealings is not unknown. Google Pay Me is synonymous with making a payment to someone through UPI. Buy it online more or less implies you can buy it off of Amazon. You're probably even listening to this episode on a device powered by Apple or Google's operating system after seeing a post about this on Facebook or Instagram. Now, imagine your bank account is with Google, your health insurance policy is from Amazon, and your payments were handled by Facebook. It might sound absurd to you, but that's not far from reality. The appetite for big tech has only been growing over the last few years. They've entered into industries like oil exploration, space travel, healthcare, education, and now their next stop seems to be financial services. But there is an underlying macroeconomic problem that occurs when big tech spreads its wings. When technology is utilized to provide a service or pr- produce something, it drives down costs drastically. Rana Faruhar in her book Don't Be Evil argues that low costs and higher productivity has stagnated wages, kept interest rates low, and caused a tech-induced deflation in the economy. Taking it a few steps further, this can even threaten our financial stability if survival hinges on using the latest and the most efficient technology at any given point. I asked Shohini how we should start thinking about financial stability and what the entry of these companies means to regulators in India. Okay, so this is this is a massive question. So maybe I'll I'll start by um, telling you wh- how I am sort of viewing the situation. Um, so financial stability, number one, is a huge word to unpack. Um, when you look at a country like India, uh, we don't even have a legislation telling us exactly what financial stability means. Um, so it, first of all, the banking sector it means something different. Uh, but unfortunately, in a country like India. Uh, we don't have a macro perspective of what financial stability means uh, on a system-wide level. Um, now, to go back a little bit, the reason why uh, you know you talked about this and the reason why I am particularly interested in this uh, is because we have to view the financial system as an essential public infrastructure, uh, which means any sort of disruption, whether it's big tech companies, uh, as you said, entering the financial sector, or you know any other sort of um, exogenous risk, uh, say COVID nineteen, or or if you go back in time, even you know the introduction of the railroads in America, any sort of disruption to this essential public infrastructure may cause some kind of uh, rupture in the fabric of the system. So that's how I look at financial stability, and if we have to truly understand um, current and future challenges. I suppose we need to look at financial stability in broader ways than we have uh, historically looked at it. Now, the reason now 
I think we, we can, it's probably uh, going to be easier if we unpack different areas of what you said. Um, so number one is if you look at banks versus tech companies, right? If you look at the current sort of, um, you know, literature existing around big tech entering financial services, you'll see that the lending footprint of big tech companies is very low. Yeah. Which means that the, you know, the, yeah, the revenue of big tech companies doesn't come from retail deposits, as is the case for banks. Yeah. Um, you know, they have a very, very small footprint. They are, as you correctly pointed out, they are just giving a competitive edge to banks. Now, one striking factor is that A, they are not getting a huge amount of profit from this, um, which should, you know, drive us to ask the question, so why are they entering into this market? Yeah. Now, this to understand this also to understand the economics of tech companies. If you look at investor and fundings of, you know, tech companies or platform based companies, particularly, you'll see that investors have typically put in money or capital uh, for growth. So the larger the, the amount, the spread or the scale uh, of the tech company that we're concerned with, the more investment comes in. So they are not usually looking at retail deposits. They are not usually looking at profits in the short term. They're looking at growth and this sort of puts them, you know, at a huge advantage, um, you know, as compared to banks. Uh, second, they are also well capitalized and well leveraged companies. You know, they have, they have liquid assets. Um, they have huge network effects, um, which I think this is the entry point of the financial stability conversation. And maybe we can have a more detailed conversation about it. Um, but, but the fundamental threat that most regulators, um, you know, have sort of postulated is, um, is that because these tech companies come with such a huge sort of network effect, um, they're able to capitalize their current capital and non-capital, you know, the social capital and convert that into, you know, growth, which means that they're, they're going to get more number of people to log on to the service, yes. whether it's a new kind of cryptocurrency or a payment system. So that's where, you know, banks cannot compete. It's impossible to compete on the scale. Yeah, that's actually interesting because then uh, I'm going to use your, this answer that you've given as the framework, okay, because you have covered the entire spectrum of where uh, tech companies have the incentive and how they operate. So I'll cover the second part of how they operate in the next part. I want to uh, take you up on this uh, concept of essential infrastructure and how they use this for growth. Now, the way we've seen historically, we've seen that tech has created and, and improved a lot of things. And what was probably essential five or 10 years ago, uh, what was probably non-essential five or 10 years ago is absolutely essential now. So in a way, uh, uh, can we argue that tech not only just enters into essential services, but also it dictates what can be essential and what is non-essential? No, absolutely. And I think this idea of detection is, uh, again, coming back to a banking term, right? The, the way banks became very, very critical to the financial system, again, historically speaking, is because they performed a very important function called the search and, the search and monitoring function, right? Which means that if I want money and you have money, and you have no idea who I am, uh, I need an intermediary to sort of do that search function for you, monitor my risk for you. This is what enabled credit systems. Otherwise, you would, uh, you know, we would be limited to borrowing money from, you know, for my birthday party, I would just go to my friends. If I wanted to buy a car, I would probably go to my relatives or my friends and family. Uh, but for me to be able to leverage the 
the market and reach unknown people and for them to trust me we need these intermediaries tech companies also perform this important search and monitoring function they do it efficiently by using traditional and alternative data models the alternative data models rely on information such as our location data search history job profile browsing patterns and other such non financial and non sensitive personal information this allows lenders and other service providers to make a more holistic assessment of the customer and also drives down the risk and the processing costs involved although banks and financial institutions historically have been early adopters of technology they are mired with regulatory compliance and operational inefficiencies but when tech companies enter the equation these problems are avoided in this whole arrangement the tech companies lay their hands on arguably the most important asset in the whole transaction which is customer data sometime in early 2018 amazon had announced a new insurance company in partnership with berkshire hathaway and jp morgan insurance stocks in the us plummeted 3 to 5% post the announcement any market that amazon enters there is a sudden fear in that market there's also an index tracking this fear it's called death by amazon this begs the question what is the fear we have to look at i think the whole breadth of fintech you know of financial services being provided by tech companies across the world um and we see that the way they sort of integrate themselves into the system um is primarily through two ways right uh, they can either become a bank themselves uh, a good example of this is china where for example you have uh, uh, you know tencent which is a tech company investing in a fully digital bank right so i'm talking about we bank um and they have become a bank themselves and but fewer countries have allowed it like china has allowed it some of the company uh, countries uh, regulators have not allowed this um where you're not allowed to directly enter into the market or where there are really high regulatory costs which means that even if you look at india you know the number of licenses given to payment banks uh, have been fairly low um the cost of ends to partner with an existing bank where you provide the you know so the the back end sort of function of of collecting loans of dispersing loans etc you know of maintaining these records etc is done by the bank in a traditional fashion and you are the front end you know consumer facing front which leverages you know data to find new borrowers or you know assign credit scores to consumers uh, who were you know earlier excluded from the system the third third is of course through loan syndication or securitization but that's yeah. uh, been you know limited to very developed markets in emerging markets it's primarily these two and as i said i find that the reason is um is expansion is scope and scale um and there are very very good reasons for not becoming a bank yourself you know there is more regulatory scrutiny um you know you have to have deposit insurance as a tech company this is not my main source of revenue Yeah. Uh, so apart from getting data um i don't see any economic sense for tech companies to actually become banks unless regulators give a free pass you know to become so in the 2008 financial crisis there were multiple loans given to less creditworthy borrowers and these loans were converted into complex financial instruments and sold off to investors since banks were making huge profits through commissions from these sales they wanted to sell more loans to investors in the process they sacrificed adequate due diligence on borrowers lent to customers even though they could not pay back and did not worry about the consequences this act of taking more risk at the cost of others is called a moral hazard 
In any given society, there are only a limited number of creditworthy borrowers. Some fintech companies make money by generating leads for these banks through their proprietary algorithms and opaque AI models. Eventually, the incentive for these companies would be to window dress borrowers as creditworthy and the banks may in turn lend to these individuals or entities. As they become more reliant on these companies as their intermediaries, there is a high possibility of a tech-driven moral hazard brewing. That is one of the reasons why, um, you know, fintech generally has been, you know, spoken about in the sense of uh, exaggerating, you know, um, stability issues or creating fragility in the market. Um, and this is this is a very good example of that, right? The reason why, um, and this moral hazard problem, by the way, is not related to just tech companies, right? No. This moral hazard problem, as we know from the global financial crisis, exists with a lot of other financial intermediaries as well. True. So we haven't solved the moral hazard issue through regulation. So that, that's not going away. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I think this is where, uh, and if you look at, say, you know, increasingly at East Africa, for instance, where you have seen a growing intermediation of existing financial institutions like banks and fintech companies, you'll see that these tech companies are performing a huge amount of you know, functions that traditionally uh, was being performed by governments in these countries. So this, and this is not just tech, this is also telecom regulation, right? Um, so you have these tech companies giving everything from a SIM card um, to providing you know, streetlights. Uh, so if you look at the example of Huawei in, in, in Africa, in a lot of countries, they have invested in road and other infrastructure. Now, there are two reasons for doing so. One is that they're providing data to the government, uh, which, okay. you know, arguably there are many papers that have said that this is directly contributing towards surveillance. Um, but for their own purposes, it also gives them critical data about the people that they are lending, you know, payment services to. Um, you know, they are also providing other kinds of non-financial services, um, like providing health infrastructure, for instance, uh, but also utilizing this and creating this master sort of inventory list or creating this profile, this digital profile or this digital imprint, which can, of course, then be leveraged to give different kinds of financial products from insurance to, you know, right now they are also, you know, facilitating uh, payments or uh, cash, uh, you know, direct cash transfers, etc. So once you create that sort of uh, data bank, you can leverage it for any purpose. Uh, and we're seeing this increasingly in countries, as you rightly pointed out, where there has been a market gap. Yes. So there is a critical infrastructure that the government or maybe someone else was providing and that is missing. And this is where you enter as a tech company. And this kind of over-reliance is, of course, a matter of concern. Um, and this is where I think, I mean, regulation is a part of the answer, uh, but also keeping an open market where you sort of are allowing other kinds of non-network based, you know, platforms to take over is also very, very critical. Apart from just becoming a moral hazard, another risk that comes along when institutions such as banks overly rely on them is that they become systemically important or in simple terms, too big to fail. This is another concept that became mainstream after the 2008 financial crisis. Banks such as JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and Bank of America were bailed out by the US government, stating that they were too big to fail. So what does this mean exactly? An institution that has been given a too big to fail status means that it is so deeply ingrained into its economy and the financial system 
that its failure would lead to disastrous consequences to the economy big tech now wields the power to decide what can be essential with the way things seem to be going they can soon become entrenched into the financial system their efficient search and monitoring function the data processing powers and their analytic capabilities have the potential to make these companies a necessary and an unavoidable financial intermediary to sustain the existence of a robust financial system in 2017 using the example of the failure of okriti bank in russia shohini had written a piece for the first post arguing that giving an institution the tag of too big to fail dooms that institution to fail she called it a self fulfilling prophecy you know again it's it's an interesting sort of i mean again there are multiple scholars who have who said this and again this is not related to just the um you know the financial system um this relates to any sort of system or any sort of function or you know an institution that deems or is tagged as a you know systemically important institution when you get that tag essentially you're signaling to the market or the regulator is signaling to the market that this is so big that we will not allow them them to fail um so for example and this this doesn't need to be a formalistic mechanism right uh you know from the conversations that you have with you know with your you know with your parents uh with our sort of general understanding of the of india today uh we use you know we use the state bank of india uh, or lic as a proxy for government guarantee so you and i know that no matter what happens in india today state bank of india officially on the records is never going to be allowed to be failed uh and this creates a sort of self fulfilling prophecy of a moral hazard right so as a bank i become complacent i take on more and more debt i take on more and more i basically can do away with uh, a lot of internal checks that as a small bank i would do because i would essentially run out of business um so i think in a, in an earlier conversation with you i was telling you that you know very famously the rbi will say uh and you'll see this in bank reports in, in rbi's annual reports that you know in india we've never seen a bank failure yeah <laughs> which is very counterintuitive you because you would think it, what it simply means is that we don't allow banks to fail we will either merge them at the very end or you know we're going to um you know force someone else to take over um it, it simply means that it's not we're just like sort of brushing things under the carpet it's just to say that um things of course needs to feel and that needs to feel is a critical part of uh you know how markets function efficiently so the efficient market hypothesis is relying on the fact that inefficient firms must be allowed to fail uh which we don't see with either big tech companies if you look at google for instance it will not be allowed to fail because our you know or amazon right amazon web services is where all government uh, you know our emails you know our government land records etc are you know our entire financial system is working on amazon web services yeah. um so in effect they are too big to fail and no matter what they do regulators are always going to be at the back foot because they have a negotiating you know they have a bigger chip on the shoulder essentially true true but uh, so why even give this tag to begin with why do why do why do governments go out and say hey uh, state bank of india is a systematically important bank and they are not going to allow anything why why even have this tag in the first place it's an interesting question i think it's an, it's an it's an evolving question whether we should give a tag or not see to be to be again as i said even you don't need a tag right in india for instance there are a number of institutions in india which are too big to fail 
but we haven't declared it to be so. Um, as I was saying, you know, INFS, for instance, which failed, uh, you know, over many, many years, we saw it feeling, you know, people involved in the business would tell you that we saw this happening. Uh, but INFS is, is a word that we did, none of us, at least consumers, retail consumers didn't hear of this because it's a back-end NBFC, right? Um, so even without, you know, saying it, it is, you know, a too big to fail institution. One of the good things about acknowledging a problem is that you can take steps beforehand. Uh, the idea of a good, mature financial regulatory systems won't just say that, you know, you are a too big to fail, you are a systemically important and just stop there. Yeah. The idea is to take actions in advance. You know, this whole concept of um, living will in the US, for instance, where, you know, and these are accessible publicly. So if you go on the Federal Reserve website, you, will, you can find, you know, Bank of America's living will. A living will is essentially, you know, a too big to fail institution telling you, um, you know, just sort of using it as an instrument of um, a time machine, saying that today I'm healthy, but let's put ourselves in this time machine and fast forward to say 2050, when we may not be a healthy institution. And what do we do when we are on our deathbed? Uh, so what does that will look like? That is a concept that is yet to come fully in India. Uh, so right now that tag of too big to fail essentially just means, uh, you know, it, it, it signals very little. Uh, we need to do a lot more ex ante than wait for something to fail and then say, you know, what do we do now? Right. So one last question around financial stability. So in the starting, you said that India does not have a macroeconomic view of how even we should measure financial stability or how do we start viewing this? So uh, can you tell me like as a regulator, what are the, the three or like first principles of viewing what a, what a stable financial system should look like? So see the, the parameters of what financial stability is, um, has been very well encoded in our banking system. And this is a slight difference from in India from uh, you know, the rest of the G20 world at least. Okay. So what happened after the global financial crisis is that there was a general shift away from entity-based, you know, separate regulators to a more activity-based, function-based regulation, okay. right? So in India, you'll have a banking regulator for banks. Uh, and banking company, and again, I'm going slightly into legalese, but there is a very specific definition of what a bank is. So technically, if I'm not a bank, I don't fall under that regulatory sort of uh, net. And I just slip under, which is what creates this whole problem of shadow banking. Yeah. Um, so today, for instance, if I'm an insurance company, IRDA gets to regulate me. But IRDA, very interestingly, doesn't regulate insurance as a business. It only regulates the entity. So for instance, if I call myself, um, I don't know, a fintech company that offers something like an insurance. Okay. Imagine a product like an insurance, uh, which is not, I'm not calling an insurance. It yeah. looks like insurance. It feels like insurance. We are all contributing money to it. And at a certain event, we get a certain tranche of money. money yeah. Essentially, that is an insurance product. But I don't apply for an insurance company license. I operate, say, as, as, as I said, as a fintech company. Uh, I'm not registered as an insurance company. Technically, I will not fall under the IRDA's uh, regulatory ambit. Yeah. Um, so that's an interesting thing that happens in India because it's entity-based regulation. We fail to take a macro view of the economy. Now, this problem... I suppose is going to exacerbate massively in the future, right? Because 
today if i am an amazon um, you know if i am an e-commerce platform i'm regulated and right now not even regulated by a separate regulator if i'm providing you know amazon pay which is a financial system i come under you know a particular regulator but tomorrow and you know if i sort of merge these systems you know say uh, on amazon prime i offer you know a chat service uh, where i can also simultaneously you know i can send money to you while we are v- viewing the same program together um, there is no regulator who can look at the system wide impact yeah. and of course this is exacerbated the most in financial systems because it is so interlinked uh you know right now um so of course that's a problem so even in the financial sector you know an lic is still being regulated by irda and the banking regulator has very little to say about it even though lic as a financial company has absorbed so many of the banking debt right any yeah. sort of you know like from yes bank to you know even rnfs right the so extra debt is shoved off to lic, LIC so yeah. whether lic is a systemically important institution what the impact on the entire system is going to be um there is no one particular legislator or one particular regulator which has the on law in the books of in the books of law doesn't have the legislative competence to do so so rbi is kind of doing it we yeah. have a you know council called the fsdc um which operates out of the ministry of finance which is basically all your financial regulators uh, the heads of those institutions they sit together and you know they discuss some things fsdc has its own website i couldn't find any recent meetings for the past one year uh, okay. which is shocking um so either they are not having meetings which is worse uh, or they are having meetings and the records are not public um so th- this is a bit of a concern in india uh, so we'll see how it goes <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry. I said this is the last question, but it's actually very interesting. Thanks for bringing up the entity-based versus activity-based. So I felt mm-hmm. I think that the logic behind having an entity-based regulation, because all of these regulations are really old. So I guess mm-hmm. that the logic behind is that if you want to conduct these activities, you have to be an entity conducting these activities. So assuming that I want to sell insurance, then I have to be an insurance company to tell to sell insurance. But uh, mm-hmm. therefore the logic is that tomorrow if anyone wants has an has plans of selling insurance then i think the expectation is that you have to go get an irda license before you can start selling insurance and if they don't then they can probably be penalized absolutely no you're absolutely right but what if i tell you um so one that a i'm not arguing that entity based regulation should go away yeah and most regulators in the world so for example if you look at uh, the prudential regulatory authority in the uk uh which is the macro prudential authority operates on top of the entity based regulation so you have an entity based regulation uh but you also have a macro prudential regulator the same with america same with hong kong singapore etc um so let me give you an example right so the problem with entity based regulation as you know uh is that they're operated by different kinds of laws and not all of these laws laws look the same so the rbi act looks very different from the sebi act it looks very different from the insurance act and so on and so forth all regulator act also don't look the same they don't have the same kind of powers um so for instance liquidation right liquidation of financial institutions different laws look different in india and let me give an example of a newer regulator right pfrda which is a fairly new regulator doesn't have a lot of um powers to itself right now if you look again i'm coming back to the insurance example because it is such a fascinating you know financial structure to it 
if you look at a pension product and an insurance product, in a sense, and there are a lot of economists who will argue that they're essentially the same. Yep. In insurance, if you think of a life insurance, uh, the eventuality is death, maybe. Uh, for pension, maybe the eventuality is old age. But it's the same principle where you're contributing money and you're getting an end sort of uh, result out of it. Now, but if I'm registered as an insurance company, I'm subject to a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of other regulations that I may not be um, subject to if I'm a pension, if I fall under PFRDA. Um, depending on which regulator has, you know, has a bigger net and has more powers, I can structure myself accordingly. Um, the cost of raising capital also differs, right? So which is why uh, in many jurisdictions, NBFCs, depending on where you are in the world, NBFCs will sometimes find it easier to raise capital. Uh, sometimes banks um, will find it easier to raise capital, depending on the levels of regulations. So this is what we typically call regulatory arbitrage. When there are multiple levels of regulations, you will see a flow of um, institutions and capital and funding from highly regulated places to less regulated places. And this is exactly what happens in, an ent in a purely entity-based regulatory system. When an entity is considered too big to fail, the idea is to monitor it carefully, identify signs of stress, and take steps to ensure any mistakes within the entity are immediately resolved. This is done to prevent any miscalculations in its operations or management, blowing up uncontrollably and posing a threat to the stability of the financial system. Then it is also to set in place a systematic resolution, succession, or a liquidation mechanism to minimize the impact of its shutting down. If there is no legislative definition of what financial stability means for our country, then how can the regulator decide what steps of these entities affect the stability of the financial system? So assuming that our central banks are also doubling up as our macroprudential regulators, which you're right, in most countries they do, um, the entry point happens at different levels. One is on the basis of time and one is on the basis of entity. So on the basis of time, as I briefly mentioned before, Ideally, you shouldn't be surprised by it. You know, it shouldn't be. So this is one of the biggest lessons of the global financial crisis that, you know, when Lehman Brothers failed, you know, the credit ratings for Lehman Brothers till just about, you know, three days before they failed. Uh, I mean, their bonds were rated as AAA yeah. and they suddenly became junk. Right. So the idea of building prudence in the system or the idea of building perspective in the system will only step in if you give it time. So you need to have a whole range or you regulators or prudent regulators will be monitoring these really big, complicated, risky, systemically important institutions right from their birth or right from the time they become systemically important. That's when you start marking the risk uh, category and, you know, the BIS and multiple, you know, the FSB, etc. come out with um, many, many, you know, markers of this. This could be capital adequacy, it could be liquidity, um, and now certain countries have gone even beyond and said that even climate change, for instance, could be, uh, you know, one of the levels of riskiness that you will have to factor in. Uh, but not going into the technical standards, there is a whole scale of riskiness, say going from one to five. So regulators should be, should know about the riskiness at level one. Right now, regulators powers also kick in when it's at five, which is when institutions are on their deathbed. Uh, that's where you will not find buyers. So if today, if say SBI fails uh, with the regulator having absolutely no idea 
at that stage it will be almost impossible to break up sbi or uh, to find buyers uh, to take up the debt or to find you know um, you know to even even put it in a bridge bank so as to say right because you need to liquidate these big big companies really quickly especially when there is a financial crisis happening so one is a, is is a level of time you need intervention both at ex ante level and once when you know they are at the deathbed then you need to call in the doctors you need to arrange for a coffin maker you need to find buyers you need to you know pay your depositors immediately you know so that the contagion there is no bank run happening so there's a host of things uh secondly depending on what is the entity right is it a global financial institution is it only limited to india for instance which is uh, so in typical financial terms you'll say a single point of entry where you decide much in advance let's say today if goldman sachs fails um regulators across the world should have formulated a plan in advance saying that if today it fails we will attack the new york branch and we will seal off the new york branch and enter or start the formal you know the liquidation or the resolution process from new york um what happened in the global financial crisis was that different countries ring fenced their uh, you know their their different branches separately so america said that you know we are we don't care about the rest of the world we're going to start liquidating our new york branches here you know as a result of that because the system is so interconnected multiple banks uh, across the world failed and you'll see this in iceland as well the icelandic financial crisis that happened uh, the uk essentially pushed iceland into a into a financial bankruptcy you know because they didn't consult with the icelandic sort of regulators and they said you know we are going to you know liquidate our bank process in london uh, as a result of which iceland sort of failed um so you need to decide in advance or you need to decide that okay simultaneously tomorrow if a global financial crisis strikes uh, together uh, you know rbi the fdic the bank of england you know the hong kong monetary authority together we will all act you know in a coordinated manner so you need basically this is the same you know story all over it's you know when you have an alien when you have a thanos at your hand you need to you know coordinate your actions and you it can't be a separate sort of do as you please you know uh, sort of mechanism the reserve bank of india which is the predominant regulator for financial services is currently in a unique position Throughout the economic history of developing nations, financial inclusion has always been the aim of legislators, regulators and policymakers alike. India has been no different. Right from the loan mailers in the 1980s to the current day mudra loans and the prime minister's jandhan yojana, the objective has consistently been that of access to capital and induction into the formal financial system. Even large-scale projects such as Aadhaar and the creation of UPI The underlying policy objectives of these programs has always been seen as a step towards financial inclusion. Various studies by the Financial Stability Board and the Bank of International Settlements have shown that the giant technology corporations have entered into financial services under the garb of financial inclusion. Even in India, the three largest payment services providers Google Pay, Paytm and PhonePay are backed by giant multi-billion dollar corporations. These companies have the capacity to plug the critical and necessary gap in access to finance today. They also have the ability to become too big to fail too quickly. Every approval granted to big tech is nothing short of a tightrope walk for the RBI. 
So yeah, I wanted to talk to you about the unique position RBI is in. So uh, in an earlier in an earlier conversation we were having, you said that see the the financial system in the country is so bad that tech companies actually have a chip on their shoulder. They can enter and they can say, for example, assuming Google wants an NBFC license tomorrow, it can say that hey, I am dominant in payments and I can leverage this and provide uh, a major part of your country with cheap good loans. Can I can mm-hmm. I get an NBFC license? So what should the central bank do? It's it has to balance financial inclusion. At the same time, it has to ensure that the existing financial system cannot be threatened by a big tech company. And this is possible if they give Google a license to bank. So the the question I'm getting at is how should the what should the RBI keep in mind while trying to strike this balance? You know, I think RBI sort of um, I think again this is not just an India specific problem. I think this is an emerging market specific problem. As I, as we started our conversation with. Whenever there is a gap in the market where, you know, your traditional operators in most of these emerging countries, you know, post, um, you know, in in your post-colonization phase, it has been a heavy sort of government-handed market, right? So most of the banks in in the South Asian region and even, you know, in Africa, for instance, uh, has been, there has been a lot of government involvement in providing aid, the financial infrastructure. So, you know, it could be your credit registries, it could be your stock markets, it could be even banks themselves. Uh, so you, you'll see governments having a huge role. Now, financial inclusion is fortunately and unfortunately both a buzzword um, for A, getting funding and B, entering markets. Um, and I just want to give you a very small, you know, sort of um, example, right? So for example, in, in earlier this year, Goldman Sachs, um, and joined a $55 million funding round in a South African fintech startup called Jumo. Okay. Um, you know, and this is not just in South Africa. There is, um, I mean, there's this multiple other companies as well where, you know, um, there is this other, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, fintech company um, in operating in 14 other uh, sort of uh, African countries where, you know, uh, there has been a huge amount of Chinese tech investor funding. Um, this is there in M-Pesa. This is there in, in anything. If you look at telecom regulation uh, startups, if you look at fintech startups, health start, uh, startups, big tech has, ent- has entered uh, not just in financial services. As I said, it's, ent- it's a multiple headed hydra. It's entered from a multiple sort of extraction and, and, and control of user data. When regulators are typically looking at it, one way is to allow these financial firms to solve for a critical gap in the market. You know, you give them certain licenses and you keep them under regulatory ambit. Um, that's one part of it. The second part of it is a very, is a broader question about consumer protection, um, right? So when I, when I speak about extraction and control of user data, we also have to realize that there are certain regulatory limitations as well. So for example, a, a very easy thing to say about, you know, regulation, regulating uh, big tech companies is that, you know, let's have a robust data protection law. Uh, but as we know, there are fundamental limitations to regulation as well. And this is not, this cannot just be a conversation about regulation. Of course, regulators have to be nimble, have to understand that these, say for example, a Google Pay in India, uh, is solving things that the regulator couldn't solve for, right? So if I want to send money to you seamlessly without involving a huge amount of cost, um, we have market market operators like Google Pay or like Paytm 
which are solving that problem for us. So that that problem can only be solved if the regulator comes up and says, you know what, we are allow, going to allow more competition, or we are going to come up with a government-operated, you know, counter to this. You know, China again does this so well. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's one way of going about it. The second way of going about it is to realize what these problems are. So, um, you know, if you've looked at the FinTech steering committee report that came out last year, if, I mean, the one word that comes to my mind is techno solutionism, right? The entire <laughs> report read like, you know, there has to be of, I mean, there was no formal recommendation except to say, Meti and TRAI should come up with a robust, you know, consent based formal mechanism of data protection. And data is very, very important here. See, that's how we began the conversation, right? The difference between a big tech company entering financial services and a typical bank doing it is that these big tech companies are using a massive amount of their existing data. They're leveraging their existing uh, user data and using that to find cheaper ways of lending or, you know, leveraging that data to provide for things that banks are providing. Uh, so data is a critical component of this. The problem again with financial regulation is that this is as a regulatory space, very separate from your other kinds of regulation, right? So when we talk about data protection, you will not see any mention of finance in the entire gamut of data protection conversation. Yeah. We have not reached there. So India doesn't have a data protection law one, uh, the kind of, you know, fragmented conversations we are having is based on a consent architecture, which we know in a financial inclusion conversation is meaningless, right? If I'm a poor person, if I am an underbanked person and there's someone, a company providing me something almost free of cost, uh, consent is sort of meaningless. Uh, there, the, there, the architecture of consent may not be the best, uh, you know, framework of looking at things. And even if you have a robust data protection law, um, it needs to be simultaneously also acting as, a, as your antitrust regulation, um, you know, also reducing barriers to trade, uh, also acting like a good financial regulation. As I said, this idea of what prudential regulation will look like in the future, uh, and Europe is doing a fairly good job of it, is to combine these different areas of regulation and look at them holistically and not just, you know, have a fintech regulation conversation very separate from a you know GDPR type conversation and there is no interlinkage in the in the middle. Whereas people who are profiting out of the system are right in the middle of these two. So that was the end of the discussion about big tech and financial stability. I'm here to point out that while these companies already have a presence in our market, Increasingly, they're trying to expand in different ways. I'm sure you would have noted how some of the biggest tech companies are investing or partnering with the largest telecom provider, Geo. There seem to be reports that they might be willing to partner up with other companies as well. I hope by the end of this episode, you have a framework of the kind of issues to look out for in the future. Thank you so much for listening. Let us know what you thought about this episode. What are your thoughts about big tech and this particular situation that we are currently in? And don't forget to share.